Sports. So I have a question, and this is an important one. How many of you have seen a movie, comic book, TV show of Star Wars? Just by show of hands, I need, I need some hands up. Let me see that. Okay, perfect, perfect. Now, hands down, this is a bigger question. How many of you would say, I enjoy Star Wars? Show of hands. Oh, no. We lost a few. We lost a few. Okay, so Star Wars, it's, it's near and dear to my heart. It's one of my, it's my favorite kind of movie, favorite TV show. They're just killing it in, uh, on Disney Plus now. But in Star Wars, there's one of the greatest scenes in cinema history. Uh, so I'll set the stage for those of you who either don't like Star Wars or haven't seen it. So there's the bad guy, Darth Vader, right? He's the, the most evil villain in all of the galaxy. And then there's Luke Skywalker. He's like the most good guy in all the galaxy. And they're fighting, they're battling, they're going back and forth all across the galaxy, good versus evil. And there's this scene, we can pull the picture up, uh, it's uh, this scene, how many of you remember this? Show of hands, you, yep, of course, of course, awesome. So there's this scene where Luke and Darth Vader are battling and Luke gets his hand cut off, he's kind of stumbling back and Darth Vader tells him kind of a dirty little family secret. He says, Luke, what does he say? I'm your father. He says, I am your father. And Luke, in that moment, learns that the most evil villain in the whole galaxy is actually his dad. I mean, shocking, right? He learns a truth about who he is. That day, Luke Skywalker, with his hand cut off, facing death, right, learns who he truly is. He learns something about himself, right? And who you are, your identity, we can, uh, we can take that off the screen now as much as I would love to leave Star Wars up all day, right? And who you are, your identity, what you know about yourself is so important, right? Knowing who you are, knowing your identity is one of the most important things you will ever know in this life. Why is that? Because your identity determines how you live, right? Who you are, who you view yourself as will shape how you live your life. And really, the Bible would say that there are two kinds of identities that you can live through. Two common identities, although we all have our unique quirks about us, right? One would be you're a child of God, and the other would be that you're a child of this world, right? Children of God are those who have repented of their sins and placed their faith and trust in Jesus. And those who are children of this world are those who haven't, who haven't bowed the knee in confession to Jesus. And so the Bible would say this about those children of the world. It would say in Ephesians 2 that they're dead in their sins, that they're stuck in their sins. They have no way out of their sin and that they're children of wrath. They're not in the family of God. But the Bible would say this about children of God, that children of God are holy, they're sanctified, they're called, they're loved, they're a royal priesthood, they're sons and daughters of King Jesus. Amen? And right, so our identity is so important, and I'm sure you can imagine with those two identities in mind how that would shape how you live. If you're a child of God, that changes everything. If you're a child of this world, that also changes so many things. How many of you, <laughs> show of hands, have gone through an identity crisis? Anybody bought a motorcycle lately? Nobody? Nobody? Matt said he's gone through an identity crisis, right? We think of someone going through an identity crisis as the, you know, the middle-aged man who needs to reinvent himself so he go, goes and gets a motorcycle he can't ride and, and you know, does something crazy like that, right? But an identity crisis is a serious issue. Not knowing who you truly are is a serious issue. It's a, it's a dangerous place to be in life. Picture this, you're a child of God, but instead of looking to Jesus for your identity, you look to something in this world, right? You look to your family name or, or you're raising your kids and you're saying, man, if I can raise these kids to be good citizens, right? That's where my identity is, having a good family or carrying on my dad's business or, or being super wealthy or teenagers often will look to 
sports or uh, their social media followers or classroom performance. I got to get in this college. And they say, that's where my identity is. Often we say, we answer the question, who am I with what we bring to the table, right? We say, I do this in society. I bring this to the table. This is who I am. And so we've been unpacking this on Wednesday nights with our teenagers, what it looks like to move from an identity crisis to an identity in Christ. And so this sermon, I preached this past Wednesday with our students. So uh, students, don't worry, I've I've added some more. We're going to dive deeper into this. But I'm talking about this today because I think it's super important to realize or remember that it's not just teenagers who struggle with their identity. It's not just teenagers who don't know who they are. There are many members in the body of Christ who forget who they are in Christ. And so we're going to look at the book of 1 Corinthians. You can turn to uh, chapter 5. We'll be in there. The first, uh, the church of Corinth in, that we find in 1 Corinthians, they were a church that was going through an identity crisis. They were, they were a mess, right? They were a hot mess. They had church members who were taking each other to court and suing each other on the regular. They were divided, and there was kind of this tribalism in the church. They would say, I follow this pastor. No, I follow this pastor or this church leader. So like if some of you said, I'm with Pastor Matt, and some of the teens were like, no, 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 I'm with Jackson. And then the rest of the church was like, no, I'm with David, right? And there would be this just ugly kind of hatred that would take place in the church. That's what they had. And they also had uh, sexual immorality and all kinds of other sins that were just rampant in the church. They were a church that lost focus on Jesus and began to look more like the culture around them than their savior, right? It's a, it's a dangerous church to kind of be in, and it's a sad picture of what happens when a church loses its identity. So we're going to look at this uh, this morning, and so we'll see. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. A church and identity, identity crisis will be dot, 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 and then you have point one, point two, point three. So I have three points, three points. We might be done a little early today. I don't know. Maybe not. We'll see. Uh, sometimes I like to talk, so uh, we'll, we'll see. So the first thing that we will say is that church in an identity crisis will celebrate sin. Amen. And parents, hey, just trust me. We unpack scripture with our students, right? We don't take just one, two verses. We walk them through scripture because we want our students to be equipped to handle the word of God. Amen? So, right, we, we do this uh, biblical work with our students so that they can know Christ better and serve him better. So, let's, uh, let's dive into this. It says in verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. Here it is, kind of weird, kind of weird. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? You can see in that first verse, Paul is shocked at what he's heard. Because if you read 1 Corinthians, you would know that Paul got a a letter basically explaining what was going on. And so as they were writing to him and he heard what was going on, he was shocked. He says, it's actually reported that this is going on. And he says, the sin, right? It's, it's wicked. It's perverse. He says that a son is sleeping with his mother. And likely, <laughs> likely this is a stepmother, not his biological mom, but all things considered still very weird, still very, very sinful. And he's saying that not even the lost Christians in this city would think that this kind of action is okay. Even the lost Christians were looking at this church and saying, oh my gosh, I can't believe that they're doing this, right? A church is supposed to be a beacon for the gospel, a place where sinners can find hope and, and people who are broken can be restored. But yet in this church, sin was being taken to its limits. 
It's a pretty sad picture of what a church looks like, that not even the pagans would do this. And Paul says, you guys are arrogant, right? A, a church that was experienced this should be filled with grief, is what he said. But this church was proud of themselves. They were, they were happy about what was going on. They had a pride about themselves. And I'll say this. These days, I, I, I try to stay up to date with culture, working with students. And one thing that I see more and more today is that tolerance of sin is treated as a virtue, right? That it is wise and kind and nice to see somebody in sin, see someone making hard decisions and say, it's okay, we accept it, it's, it's fine, that's not going to hurt you, that's not going to ruin your life. And so this church, they would have been proud of themselves. They would have said, you know, this brother's free in Christ, he has his Christian liberty, he's just exercising it as he pleases. And we see this in our church today where it is, it's uplifted and, and, and liked if you are tolerant towards, uh, and obviously we should be tolerant to other views in the sense that we don't hate people that don't think like us, right? That's not, that's not the way of the Bible. That's not the way Jesus walked or talked or lived. But when you get a church like this that begins to celebrate that which God does not like, you get in a uh, tough, tough situation. And so we see that their reaction was not correct because they should have been shameful, right? They should have been sad that this was going on in the church, but instead they were boastful, celebratory, and happy that it was going on. Our reaction, your reaction when you hear that a brother or sister has fallen into sin should not be to pick up the phone and begin to gossip and, and tell everybody their business. It should not be to try to instantly come up with excuses for the person. It should be sadness. It should be sadness that a brother or sister has chosen sin over God's plan for their life. Because that's what sin is. It's taking what God has in store for you, the best that God has to offer for you, and exchanging it for something else, something lesser, something not as great as God. What's better than God? Nothing. What's better than knowing him and walking with him and loving him? Nothing. I see this with teenagers all the time. God has a plan for them, something good for them, a good purpose, and they exchange it for something far less great than what God has in store for them. And so we see that a church in an identity crisis will begin to celebrate sin. As I preached this Wednesday, a, a young student, in, a middle school boy came up to me and said, you know what? This really, really does remind me of the church in America. And I was like, yes, he's getting it. His brain is working. It's moving. But it's true, Right. We read the book of 1 Corinthians, and Pastor David preached through it many years ago. And as you read it, you begin to hear and see the American church in this some, don't you? We see so many churches that have a love for money, right? And so instead of preaching the gospel, they preach a prosperity gospel that says God wants you to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. We see some churches that are more interested in building a political kingdom than the kingdom of God, so all they do is preach politics, we see some churches that are encouraging people to live lifestyles of sin, saying it's a good thing, it's something that you should try or, or taste or give into. And so for us, as the body of Christ, what we must do in our minds is remember what is right and remember what is wrong, right? We must remember what pleases God and what does not please him. Because this is a bold truth, and I'm just going to say it to you, I need it as well. Life is not about me, and it's not about you. Life is not about living out every single desire that Jackson Flieger has. It's not about seeing every single dream of mine come true. Life is not about me. It's about the glory of God. 
Life is not about us. The, the Westminster Confession says this, man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and enjoy him fully forever. That's the purpose of life. That's the goal of life, to glorify God with everything that you do and enjoy him forever. I think about Brad Mason and Miss Charlotte Fry, who now are in that second half, enjoying him fully forever. That is the goal of life, to spend our days with God. And if that's what heaven's going to be like, why would we spend our time on earth living for ourselves, building my kingdom instead of his, right? Our, our goal in life is the glory of God. It's bigger than money. It's bigger than sports. It's bigger than success. It is the glory of God that we live for. And I can promise you this as we'll, we'll move on. That is the best kind of life that you can live for the glory of God. Of God, But let's move to the second point. We see that the fruit of this church, the, the celebration of sin, comes from their disregard for the word. Right? So a church in an identity crisis will disregard the word of God. He says this, even though I am absent in the body, this is the Apostle Paul writing, I'm present in the spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus... Hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul gives clear instructions on what to do with this man in this situation in the church. What does he say? He says, hand him over. Have him leave the church for a period of time. What Paul is calling on is the practice of church discipline. Okay, the practice of church discipline is laid out in Matthew 18 where Jesus says this. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. That's the first step. If someone's sinning in unrepentant sin, you go to them one-on-one -on -one and you have a conversation. He says, if he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that the testimony of two or three witnesses, uh, every uh, fact may be established. So step two. If they reject you, you take two or three other brothers that love this person or sisters and you, and you talk to them. And you're trying to get them to leave a life of sin and enjoy the Lord. And it says if he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. And if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and tax collector to you. Church discipline is one of the most loving things a church can do because it allows the opportunity for forgiveness and restoration and healing to, to take place. You let the person go away for a period of time so that they might come back to their relationship with the Lord. And that's what... Paul is calling them to do, right? To live out this loving process for this person so that they would come back into the body. The church of Corinth would have known this principle. They would have also known, they could have looked to the Old Testament and known it's pretty easy that sleeping with your stepmother is not okay. <laughs> I mean, they would have known that. They would have been able to see God's word and know God's plan for marriage and that that was not part of it. But yet they ignored it. And this is what a church in an identity crisis looks like. They ignore the word of God. You can even add this. A person in an identity crisis will ignore the words of God. This is the attack of the enemy that he's been doing since Genesis 3. If you pull it up on the screen, it says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other creature, right? That Satan was more crafty and he came to Adam and Eve and what did he say? He said, did God really say that you can't eat from that tree? Satan's attack on Christians, on people, is to get them to believe that God's word is not trustworthy, to get them to doubt it, to eventually ignore it. 
God wants you to look at the word of God and say, I can't trust that. That's not right. That's not good. I know it says this, but I think my way is better. I think what I want to do is better. That's the attack from Genesis 3 that we've seen and that we still continue to see. Charles Spurgeon says this, if we want revivals, we must revive our reverence for the word of God. If we want revival to break out in our church, in our nation, in our families, we must revive our reverence for the word of God. Maybe the American church today has lost its zeal for God because we've lost our love for the word of God. Psalm 119 says this, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. A Christian without the word of God guiding their life is like someone stumbling through the dark, just trying to find God's will, right? Just making all these decisions without the clarity of God's word in an attempt, in a hope, in a desperate attempt to find the word of God, to find the path of God for their life. Again, a church without the word of God guiding them just stumbling through the dark. We're thankful for Pastor Lacey, how for so many years he paved the way, looking at the word of God for this church and how Pastor David continues it on. Because if we were not looking to the word of God, where would we be? Where would we be? I can promise you this, that if you build your life on the word of God, you will never be disappointed if your heart's in the right place. If you build your life on the word of God, never be disappointed if your heart's in the right place but if you build your life on anything else you will be let down that money (laughs) someday it'll run out or someday you'll die and you won't have any that relationship will let you down that friendship will let you down but the word of God will not a relationship with the Lord will not we move into the last point we'll say that a church in an identity crisis will be infected by Sin. He says this in verse 6, your boasting is not good. Remember, they're proudful or proud, they're prideful, they're celebrating the sin that's in their church. They're not shameful, they're celebrating. He says your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? The reason, the reason that Paul is calling for this man to be removed from the church is not because he's being a judgy Christian. Not because he had a bad day and he's taking it out on this man. And he's not just being harsh for being harsh, uh, harsh, like just to be harsh. It's not any of those reasons. He's calling on this man to be removed for the health of the church. How many, how many bakers do we have in the church? Raise your hand if you're a baker. You like to bake. We've got a few. We've got a few in the church. Yeah, we had some at the dessert auction. It was pretty good, pretty good. I got to taste some good stuff. It was awesome. So I'm not a baker and so Paul's illustration that he's using here, he's talking about leaven or yeast, right? And if just a little bit of yeast gets into your dough, into your bread, it will begin to uh, contaminate the whole uh, loaf of bread and the bread will rise, right? If you want unleavened bread, you want no yeast, but just a little bit. Yeast is really, really small. It's like, just looks like sand. If a little bit gets into the bread, it infects the whole batch, ruins it. You don't have your unleavened bread, right? Uh, and so it's similar like this. Just a little bit of cancer in your body can begin to spread throughout your whole body. You don't go to the doctor's office and they say, oh, well, good news, you only have a little bit of cancer, you're okay. No, that's not a good thing, it's a dangerous thing. Same with just a little bit of yeast in your bread ruins the whole batch. And what Paul is saying here, I'm sure you see it, he's saying that a little bit of sin in the body of Christ will work its way through the whole body. 
That sin that is accepted, tolerated, celebrated, uplifted will begin to work its way through each member of the body. That's how sin works. It's pervasive. It it's infects us. It's something to be dealt with seriously. Paul's saying if you allow this man to stay in your church, it will continue to spread to the other members and the health of the church will be in danger. So that's why he comes down so swiftly here. Not because he hates this man, because he loves the church and he wants the church to be healthy, to be a place for sinners to find hope, not a place for sinners to find more sin, more division, right? Isn't the church in America kind of known for division right now? <laughs> People are like, I'm not gonna go to church because you guys don't even like each other. Why would I walk in there? And maybe we've let sin work through our bodies in America, and now we're facing the consequences. But this shows us a truth that I think more of us need to know, is that sin is not just a personal and private thing. Sin is not just personal and private, but it affects all the people in your life. You might be tempted to think, excuse me, you might be tempted to think that it's your life, right? I'll, I'll, I'll live my life. It's my body. I'll do what I want. I'll live my life how I want. And it doesn't really matter. Uh, I'm a, a fan of the 80s rock band Bon Jovi. Any Bon Jovi fans in the house? You can raise your hand. I won't judge. It's just a student pastor. Uh, yeah. So Bon Jovi has this song where he says, it's my life. It's now or never. And he basically says, I'm going to live my life how I want to. And that's how so many people in our world live today. But we don't realize, what we don't realize is that what we do affects the people around us. The decisions that we make, the words that we say, the deeds that we do affect the people in our life. All of you know this to be true because you have either been hurt by somebody who sinned or you've hurt other people with your actions. Sin is not just a personal, private matter, but it affects everything that you do. And I want you to, to follow me for a moment. Think about it this way. When you walk into church, you're not a consumer. In America, we think that I walk into church, someone's going to preach to me, I'm going to get some good stuff, and, and we treat it like we're a consumer, right? Isn't that why we church shop? We, we try to find the perfect church that fits all of our needs. You hear people talk a lot about churches about me. I want a pastor that preaches a sermon that I like. I want a rock star pastor that makes me laugh. I want a church that sings music that I like. I want worship to make me happy. I want people to say hey to me when I walk in. I want people to encourage me. I want people to love me. I need this. This church isn't giving me this. But when in reality, church is not a me thing, it's a we thing. That's a weird phrase, but it's not about me, but it's about us. It's about the body of Christ gathering together. When we gather as the church, we all open the word together. When we gather, we all worship the name of Jesus together. We all praise the name of Jesus. We all encourage each other. We uplift each other. We love each other. We pray for each other. The church gathers together, together, right? We all use our gifts that the Holy Spirit has given us to edify the body and glorify our God. You're vital to the church. You sitting out here, you're not a consumer. If you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, you are contributing to the church body or you should be contributing to the church body. In the book of 1 Corinthians, he talks about how we need every single piece of the body to function as we need to. 
So you can't just walk in, sit down, walk out, and that's church. Because that's not church. We need you. I, I'll talk to my students sometimes and be like, oh, yeah, I can't, can't make youth group. I can't do this because I got a sports game or this or that. And, a, and sometimes I'll mention it to them and be like, why don't you skip your game? And they're like, what? Skip my game? No way. My team needs me. My coach would kill me. They need me in this position or on the field. And I'm trying to get them to slowly realize over time that your church family needs you more than your sports team needs you. Your spiritual gifts that you all contribute to this gathering is more important than what you can do on a sports field, what you can do at your job. You are so vital to the church. The church needs you and you need the church because we all come together and we edify the body. We glorify God together, all using our gifts. That's why it's important to be here in person because you can't edify somebody from your couch. You can't edify someone as you're sitting on the beach watching, the, watching the, the sermon or catching the podcast later. Your gifts, your value, it's so important. We need you. Your people, look around you, look around, look around. These people need you. They need your gifts. They need you to come through and to love them. And so if you play such a vital role to the church, then what you bring to the church with your actions is important. If every single one of us is just as important as the next one, then what we bring into the church gathering is so important. I told our students on Wednesday, you guys can bring sin, division, gossip, or you can bring actions that edify each other. You can bring the fruits of the spirit. You can bring your spiritual gifts. So I would ask you, Lately, what have you been bringing to the church body? Sin and, and things that divide or actions that edify, that glorify God, that help the people around you. The lifestyle that you live is so important because it does affect the people around you for the good or in a negative way. The way that we live is so important, and that's why Paul comes so hard down on this man, because his actions could be the demise of the church. There's a slowly learning more about the body, uh, the different organs in it, how they function. I don't, I don't really know a lot. I didn't, uh, didn't pay a lot of attention. In high school, I was a little bit better in college. High school, not the brightest. I was homeschooled and my GPA still wasn't great. And, you know, we can fabricate that a little bit. Uh, and uh, we did a little bit. Uh, but, you know, it is what it is. But the body has this organ called the liver. And it does a really cool thing. It helps detox your body. It, it takes some of the toxins out of your body. Uh, I want to read from the John Hopkins uh, Medicine Journal. It says, your liver represents the human body's primary filtration system, converting toxins into waste products, cleansing your blood, and metabolizing nutrients and medicine, uh, medications to provide the body with some of the most important proteins. Your liver cleanses out toxins, cleanses out impurities, and helps your body be healthier. It's pretty amazing. I mean, God, God's amazing how he's created our body. What's I think Paul's about to do in these next two verses is call this church to detox their body. It's call these Christians to detox their life from sin. Just like your liver does that because it knows those toxins are bad for your body, 
The Holy Spirit in this passage calls us to detox our body because sin is bad for our life and for the body of believers that we're a part of. See what he says in verse 7. He says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be, uh, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven, not with old leaven, uh, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Just lost my notes there. It's okay. You'll need them. He's calling this group of Christians to set aside sin, set aside sin, and to be who they really are. He says, you're not the, can we pull the scripture back up? He says, you're not this old batch of unleavened bread with all this sin in it. He says, you're a, a new batch of dough that has no yeast, that has no sin. And, and he's calling these believers to be who they truly are, to live out their identity in Jesus. He's calling them to set aside sin, to set aside the bad, the negative, and to pursue what is good. Because the bad is bad. It does not edify you. It does not build you up. And it's not who you are. He, he begins to talk about the Passover. And we know from Exodus that the Passover was when the uh, Israelites were enslaved to Egypt. And the word of the Lord came to them and it said to sacrifice the lamb and to spread the blood on your doorpost. Because an angel was coming that night and he was going to kill the firstborn of every household that did not have that blood spread on the doorpost. It's because the Egyptians were evil. They enslaved the whole people group. And Pharaoh would not listen to God, so the punishments kept coming. But the people of God spread this blood on their doorpost and the angel would pass over their house, sparing their family. And so what he's saying in this verse, in verses 7 and 8, is that Christ is our Passover lamb. That he's been crucified for us. His blood has been shed, right? We sing about how the blood washes us clean. We were singing hallelujah for the uh, cross that was talking about the blood of Jesus. Because of the gospel, because of what Jesus has done, saved and now sin this yeast has no hold on our life you and I don't have to live as sinners anymore sin has no dominion over you it has no power over you because Christ defeated sin these believers at the church of Corinth were living sinful lifestyles when they didn't have to the chains have been broken hell has been defeated Death has no more sting. Sin has no more power over the life of a believer. And so he's calling the body to remember the gospel. And I think we as Christians need to do this more, to remember the gospel. Because it's not just a one-time thing for us, but we continually come back to the gospel. Because through the gospel... Hell has no victory. Sin has no power. Because Christ conquered it all. He carried our sins on the cross and was crucified on our behalf. And now this is not to say that you'll be perfect on this side of heaven because you can't be. But you don't have to be defined by your sin, 
controlled by your sin, enslaved by your sin, because we are no longer slaves to sin. Because Christ has overcome it on our behalf. So I would call you today, I call myself today, don't think I'm any better than you, to detox your life from sin. Maybe as we move forward in the next few moments and and sing in just a few minutes, maybe you would come and lay your sin at the foot of the cross because he's already died for it. He already conquered that sin. And so many of us in here could probably think of one, two, maybe three, maybe four, maybe five, maybe more sins that we keep struggling with. And if you're a Christian, that's not what God has in store for your life. He doesn't want you to continue to struggle with that. He bought your freedom on the cross. And so now we can live as free people. The first step to moving out of an identity crisis is living out your identity in Christ. Because he says that you're becoming this new batch of dough, but he says, as you already are. He says, that's what you are. You're freed from sin. Tony Evans, one of, I think, the greatest pastors America has seen, says this. He says, Christian, don't you know who you are? Stop letting the world tell you who you are. You are a child of God. You are a saint. You are sanctified. You are secure. You are holy. You have royal blood flowing through your veins. That is who you are. He goes on to say, a lot of us are not acting like we should act because we don't remember who we are. I said at the start that a Christian who forgets their identity in Christ is sad. And so I would call you on the screen. I would say this, be who you are in Christ. The best thing that any of us could do is to go forward and live out our identity in Christ. That'll be how we change the world, how we see revival take place is if we live out our identity as a child of God, as a son, as a daughter of King Jesus. Amen? And so let me land this plane very quickly and say this. What this passage is not saying is that if you struggle with sin, you have no place in the church. That's not what it's saying, because you might get that idea that it's saying, oh, if I have sin, I shouldn't come to church till I fix that. No, that's not what it's saying. If you're struggling with sin right now, the church is the best place for you to be, to find healing, to find restoration, to overcome your sin. What this passage is focusing on is the person who is in unrepentant sin, who habitually sins over and over and over and sees no wrong, has no feeling at all that what I'm doing is not right. But I don't want you to misunderstand and think there's not a place for me in church because that's where the perfect people are. Newsflash, there are no perfect people. We're all sinners. We're all hypocrites. We all have things that need to be detoxed from our life. But the best thing that you can do is find a relationship with Jesus that saves you from your sin. Because you cannot overcome sin without Jesus in your life. You can never be good enough. You need him and what he did on the cross to overcome sin. And I would ask is, will our church begin to take our identity in Christ seriously? What if every single decision that we made was made through the lens as a child of God? Every single business decision, vacation that you take, move that you make, purchase that you make, 
was done through the lens of I am a child of God, how does this help me become a better one? How does this help me share the love of Jesus? What if we saw ourselves more as citizens of heaven than citizens of America? What if we saw ourselves more as followers of Christ than followers of ourselves? There's great freedom in Christ, but I don't think we fully get to experience it until we answer the question, who am I, with I am yours, Lord. Should that not be our heart's desire? To be able to answer that question, Lord, I am yours. Here I am. Send me. I will go. I will do it. And so as we begin to worship, maybe there's something in your life that you need to lay down. There's a sin that you need to give up. There's a struggle that you need help with. I would just say we're here. And so as we bow our heads and close our eyes to prayer, you can do that now. I would just invite you to experience the forgiveness that is at the foot of the cross for you. 